0: If you'll take your copies of God's Word in hand, turning with me to the little book of Jude. So if it's small. You're like, where, where, in the world is Jude? Just go to the back of your Bibles. Revelation is the last book. Jude is the next to last book. And if you're turning too fast, you'll go right over it. It's a very short book. It's just one chapter that has 20, uh, has 20, uh, 25 uh, verses. Very small book, but it is packed full of goodness, and so this morning, we're only going to look at two verses, the introductory uh, passages here, where Jude gives a greeting to the church, he tells who's writing it, uh, a little part of all the epistles, we have the tendency to just kind of skip over, uh, don't do that, there's a lot of weight in those little letter introductions throughout all the epistles, but especially Jude here today. So, today we'll be reading Jude 1 and 2. Before I read God's holy and arid and inspired word, let's go to him in prayer and ask that his blessing might be added to it. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we are about to read the words of your servant Jude, who says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Father, we are praying that same prayer today, that you might multiply exponentially your mercy and your peace and your love to us through our worship of you this morning. Not just through our worship, through our singing, through our prayers, but through us sitting under your word. Father, we would ask that by your spirit that he might attach himself to the preached word, that it might produce fruit that is eternal because it is not the fruit of the flesh, it's fruit of the Spirit, which is without end. So, Father, would you please do this for us in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, hear now the Word of God, Jude 1 and 2. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. I don't think it goes without saying that we live in a a very confused world uh, when it comes to almost anything. Things that uh, just a few decades ago were just kind of taken at face value, just being kind of common sense. Now, we seem to require a lot of time to kind of think it over a very academic definition of things like oh well what is a man what is a woman what is marriage what is sexuality and things like that and we can look into the world at all this confusion and we can we can easily say that our world has a moral problem when we say moral problem we mean there's an issue of the doing there's a there's a problem of action well a couple of years ago uh, a book came out uh, that was, I, th- I think it's probably one of the more important books that have probably come out in the last 20 years. The, the book is entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, written by a guy by the name of Carl Truman, who is a ordained minister in the OPC. He is also a professor of history and philosophy at Grove City College. In that book, I think he rightly identifies that at the heart of the problem of our society's confusion is not a doing problem, but it's instead an identity problem. That the idea of what makes a person a person, what is the self, has has been so radically changed over not just the past 50 years, but over the past 200 years, that now we honestly don't have any clue who we actually are. And he gives a, a, a really, I think a, a very interesting kind of thought experiment. He's like, he says, imagine, imagine in your mind that you're able to just to get into a time machine and go back not even that far in the past, 50, 60, 70 years, something like that. And you got out of the time machine, you just found the first person you saw on the street, and you asked them the question, Who are you? Well, the answer that you would have received would have had something to do with the person identifying who they are. By their relationship with something outside of themselves. Maybe they would identify themselves through their familial relationships. I'm a father. I'm a mother. I'm a grandparent. I'm a brother. I'm a sister. Maybe they would have identified themselves through their economic relationships. I am a farmer. I'm an accountant. I'm a truck driver. I'm a pastor. Something like that. And then some would identify themselves by their religious affiliation, by their relationship with God. I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Protestant. I'm Catholic. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Methodist. I'm Baptist. Something like that. And all these answers, they're all finding their self-identity in something outside of them. But today, what are the answers that you receive? Yes, sure, many people will still answer those questions in that way. But for some people, it's a hard question to answer. Who am I? And a lot of times those answers have to do not with something outside of themselves, but what they see looking back at them in the mirror.
1: They identify themselves according to skin color, ethnicity, language, sexual attraction, gender, Something like that.
0: It's all looking in in and in turn, I think Rodney points out that that's radically different than how it has been for the entire history of humanity. We have become very, very introspective. And so for us as Christians, how do we answer that question who am I? Who, who am I? How do I identify myself? Well, in this intro In this introduction that Jude gives us, he is giving us a window through which we can see ourselves as who we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to identify ourselves as Christians. And so through through Jude's introduction, I want us to ask him three questions. We're going to ask Jude three questions. First, we're going to ask Jude the all-important question, who are you? And then we're going to ask Jude another question, who is the church? And then we're going to ask Jude one last and final question. What do you want? Who are you, Jude? Who is the church? And what do you want? Let's begin by looking there in verse one. In verse one, he gives two words through which he identifies himself. The first one is that word servant. He says that I he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. But there's a translational issue here. The, the Greek word that is translated in the ESV as servant is the Greek word doulos, which more literally translates into slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand why the ESV opts for servant. The, the, the truth of the matter is that, that the way the word slave was used and the Biblical times is very different from the way it has been used in America over the past couple of years. Um, the, the, the American idea of slavery was actually very similar to that of the Hindu caste system. That basically there was a class of people that by being born into this class, you were just automatically a slave. It was almost like your divine right. Well, in biblical times, it is much more similar to something like indentured servitude um, uh, being a bond servant, or something like that. There wasn't a slave class, necessarily. And so, that's probably why the ESV goes with the word servant, because that word means something
1: different today. But I really like it because Slave really gets at the heart of what Jude is trying to get at. That when you are a slave, or even when you are a servant, you work not to serve yourself, not to seek your own self A good servant is always going to seek out the will, the pleasure, the goodness, and the glory of his master. Any slave that holds to glory for himself is not good at what he is supposed to do, he has, as Jesus says. A wicked Wicked person. And so when Jude comes in here and he says, I am a slave to Christ, what he's saying saying? I am obedient to Christ. I am called to be obedient, obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a problem that a lot of people with Christianity We all like the idea of being saved from our sins, but we don't like necessarily to be told not to. We like the idea of Christ being Savior, but we really kind of hate the idea of Christ. Because so here's the thing He is not Savior or Holy, He is Savior in Holy. King of the Kings and Lord of the and the Lamb of God. Don't think that's on what I
0: Hoisting up on us rules, regulations, and things like that, that somehow that is contrary to our happy. Well, wait a minute. Jesus died for my sin so that I can be happy. Well, what do you mean by that? Did he die for your sin so that you can continue to live in the sin that makes you happy? That's not how that works. That's a complete and total misunderstanding of who Christ is and what the grace of God is. Happiness and obedience in the Christian life are not detached things. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 1, who delighted in the law of God. It was a delight. When the Christian sees the law, he doesn't see just this kind of this kind of blind, pitiless, just set of do's and don'ts. No. He sees the glory of his Savior. Who came into the flesh so that he might fulfill the law, not do away with it, but to fulfill it. It looks at it and sees it sees it sees the, the the pathway to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is our law keeper. And it's also a misunderstanding of grace. Because here's the thing, grace, it certainly does forgive you of your sins, but it will never allow you to sin. It's a misunderstanding of Romans chapter 2 where Paul says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repent? Repentance as it regards to sins has two parts to it. It's a sorrow for sin. It's a deep-seated pain that you feel from sin. But it is also a hatred of sin. And we don't mean like hatred, just like, oh, I don't like it. No. No. A desire to kill it, to murder the sin that is in you. As John Owen says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is the will of God for the Christian life. Kill sin. Put it to death. Hate it. Grace always produces sorrow for sin, but never a hunger for it. Christ is Lord, and he is Savior. But what else does Jude say about himself? He is the brother of James. Now, this is easy to kind of pass over here, but there's 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 a lot to him saying that he is the brother of James. You ever heard of sibling rivalry? You have a brother or a sister, and there, just kind of be honest, but hopefully you're not like this, but if you're like me, you probably are, where when your brother is doing a little bit better than you, There's a little part of you that kind of wishes that he would just kind of fall flat on his face a little bit. The best example that I know of this was, I don't know what year it was, but it was the year that the Denver Broncos beat the Carolina Panthers in the Super Bowl. Peyton Manning was the quarterback. And Peyton Manning threw a a touchdown pass that won the game for the Denver Broncos, and the camera panned up into the stands where his brother Eli Manning was. And this is Eli Manning's face. Not happy at all. And I know exactly why he was doing that, because with that Super Bowl, Peyton had now won as many Super Bowls as he did. He wanted to be the best one. He was, he was the little brother of Peyton. Peyton was seen as being great, but he had that one thing over him, more Super Bowls, Not anymore. Well, who's James? The brother of June? Well, he's one of the most important people in the church here in the first century. He was, he, was, he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. He presided as a type of moderator over the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where it was, where probably the most important doctrinal dispute in the history of the church was decided, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In order to be Christian, as, uh, coming from being a Gentile, did you need to become Jewish? Did you need to come under the law? Or are you a Christian by faith and faith alone? That's a pretty prominent and important place to hold. But James isn't Jude's only brother. He has an eldest brother, Jesus Christ himself. Now you think Jude, you think James is a hard act to follow. Jesus, the son of God, king of kings, lord of lords. What does he say about Jesus? Jude, a slave, a slave to his brother and a lesser to his brother James. If you want to pick out a word for Jude here, I think you could have a hard time finding a better word than humility. And there's a sense in which every Christian should have this spirit about him. You know why? Because that's our name. Christian. You know what Christian literally means? Little Christ. We are little Christ walking around in this world. And Christ... As humble as Judas, it pales in comparison to the humility of Christ Jesus. Take your Bible with me and turn to Philippians chapter two, verse five. Let's look at this, let's look at this briefly at what the apostle Paul says about the humility of the Christian and the humility of Christ. Philippians chapter two, verse five, he says, have this mind among yourselves. So basically, you're all different, you're all diverse, but there's one part where there shouldn't be any diversity, this. This mind should be among every single one of you in Jesus Christ. So who is Jesus here? He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word form, you can it's easy to look at that and say, well, he just kind of looked like God. He was kind of like in the, in the mold of God. The the Greek there is morphe. It literally means inside and out. When it says he was in the form of God, it means that both on the outside and on the inside, he was God. Every ounce of him was God. He was divine. The second person of the Trinity, equal with God and equal with the Father and the Spirit in power and glory. He was actually God. That's why he says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That, that idea was is that it's not like he had to go out there and attain deity. It was already his. He didn't have to grab it. It already belonged to him. But what does he do? What is, so what does he do? He empties himself. He empties himself. Come down into verse, uh, verse 7. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And so that word emptied, a lot of times people mistakenly look at that and they say, well, that means that he was divine, he stopped being divine, and then he became human. Well, that's not what it, that's not what this is saying. One thing, God cannot cease to be. This is, the, the universe is upheld by the word of his power. What happens if he disappears? We all just go away. That did not happen. He did not cease to be God. Well, then how did he empty himself? It is an emptying by addition. What does it say? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Without setting aside his deity, he took to himself a human nature. In his deity, eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent. But in his human nature, suffered all the infirmities that we suffer, yet without sin. He was born in time. He was born of a woman. He knew what it was to hunger. He knew what it was to thirst. He knew what it was to hurt. He knew what it was to feel pain. He knew what it was to lose someone very close to him. You know what else he knew? He knew what it was to be a slave, to be a doulos. There's that word again. He took the form of a doulos, a servant. God became a As slave. And what do slaves do? Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Obedience. He became obedient for you. He became obedient unto the law, even obedient unto the point of death. He sought the will of God. For Jesus Christ, the will of God, the law of God, was something to be delighted in. There's something to glory in. And what was the will of God? What does John say in John 6? What does Jesus say in John 6? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. It is dehumanizing. Embarrassing, belittling, could be
1: bought with money. But what if you were bought grace? What if you were bought with the blood of
0: the divine? This is not an economic transaction. This is a divine transaction of mercy, where he became our sin's, and we have become his righteousness. This produces Christ-like humility, having that mind among us. What does a humble soul look like? Let me read you a quote from the Puritan Thomas Brooks. He says, the humble soul will bless God when he frowns as when he smiles, when he takes as when he gives, under crosses and losses and under blessings and mercies. The humble soul sees the rod in his father's hand but also the honey on every on top of every twig. He sees sugar at the bottom of even the bitterest cup. We suffer in humility. We have prosperity in humility. That is the mind of the Christian because it was the mind of Christ to be humble and Jude is showing us this. All slaves and servants are defined by obedience. But the one who is slave to Christ is obedient to a master who shows his love for them and that he himself became a slave and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. So that is who Judas is. He is a humble slave of an infinitely more humble master. A humble slave of an infinitely more humble master. But who is the church? Who are we? When he's out there working in these churches, who does he see? Who are these people that he is working with? Look with me down there at the second part of verse of uh, verse one. He says, To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. First of all, notice here, he's not looking inside any of them. He's looking for what he's, he's looking for the grace of God that is at work in them. Even how he identifies others, he identifies them in light of the work of God, particularly God's work of salvation in them. How many of us are guilty of judging by outward appearances? And how many times have we been very embarrassed by the result of judging by outward appearances? I used to go to seminary with a guy by the name of Kelly Jackson, who is now the... Are you up to retro at Florida State? Kelly Jackson was a very nice guy. But he was so nice that I was suspicious of him. You ever been like somebody who was so nice or like, he's, he's got to want something. Like, he's, like he, he's, he's, he's a con man or something like that. And so for a long time in seminary, I looked with a great deal of suspicion and down my nose quite a bit at Kelly. But after four years, you know what I discovered? He actually really was just a nice guy who just wanted to help, who just wanted to be an encouragement, who just wanted to be a brother in Christ to all of God's people. I was humbled by Kelly Jackson. If Kelly Jackson wasn't the problem, I was the problem. I was judging with these eyes rather than the eyes of Christ. Judging, judging, not judging with the eyes of Jude who looks for the grace of God and shouldn't be surprised when he sees the grace of God working out in people in marvelous, marvelous ways. So what is this work? The first work is the call of God. Those who are called, any calling is going to come from outside. When the kids are outside, I need them to come in to eat. They don't call themselves, I call them. When my dog is eating the FedEx package that was left on the front front porch, I call the dog. The dog doesn't call herself. It's always going to come from outside. But when we think of the call of God, we need to think about it in two ways. First of all, we need to think about the outward call. All of you in this room, apart from Christ or in Christ, are all now being called outwardly. Anytime the gospel is proclaimed, either from a pulpit or from a friend or from a family member, from an evangelist, that person is being called. But here's the problem. I can speak to your ears, but I cannot make you hear. I can speak to your ears. I cannot touch your heart. I wish I could, but I can't. Why is that? It's because by nature, you do not have the eyes with which to see, and you do not have the ears with which to hear. That's Jeremiah 5.21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but they hear not. Outward call alone won't save anybody. There needs to be something else. The inward call. Well, where did, what's, what's the inward call? The the one preaching is it? Does it come from with? Is it is it me? Do I inwardly call myself? Just the, if the, the preacher can't do it, who in the world gives the inward call? In Mark chapter eight, right after Jesus has fed the multitudes with the fish and the loaves of bread, he's in the boat with the disciples going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples begin to fight with one another over bread. What are we going to eat? They begin to ask. And then Jesus, hearing them kind of just going back and forth, says, Be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees. Like, you're you're thinking with your gut. You're thinking with your stomach. You're thinking with your hunger. No, no, that's that's not the bread you need to be worrying about. You need to be worried about the bread of false teaching. That's what you need to be worried about. But they just totally ignore Jesus. They ignore him. They just go back to bickering about food. And then Jesus, astonished, quotes Jeremiah 5.21. How long do I have to bear with you? Do you? I see your eyes, but can you see? You have ears, but you do not hear. He quotes Jeremiah 5.21 again. Well, but the question, how are they going to, because something happens. I mean, they go from being confused, wicked, blasphemers, ignorant, to becoming apostles, writing the New Testament. Performing miracles and they given their lives for Jesus. What happened? Sandwiched. That, that story is sandwiched between two other stories, two other miracles. And the first miracle there is a man who is blind. And Jesus sees him begging, and he comes and he spits. And he touches his eyes and he sees. And then on the other side of the story, there is a deaf man. And the same thing. He spits his fingers in his ears, and he hears. It is Christ. It is Christ who speaks inwardly. He has sheep who he must call, and he must call them by name. Well, how does he do it? He does it by the Holy Spirit. He does it, the Holy, and the Holy Spirit attaches his power to the outward call. As, as John Calvin said, it has pleased the Spirit to join his power with the stammering tongues of preachers. That is how he does it. So it's not just the outward call, it's the inward call. It is all of grace. If you are a Christian, it is because you heard the voice of Christ through the stammering, bumbling tongue of a preacher. That is why you believe. You have heard the voice of your shepherd, and you have come to him. But you're not just called; you're beloved, beloved of the Father. Think about that for a second. Beloved of the Father. A lot of us think of this idea, have this idea of 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 Jesus, of God the Father being angry, and then Jesus to kind of subside that anger comes into flesh, and then basically just try just 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 to kind of get in the way of that anger. And there's, part of that is true, but here's the thing. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? Why did Jesus come into the world? John 3, 16. For God so loved. The love of God preceded the sacrifice of the Son. When did God start loving you? When did God set his love upon you? To use the time machine uh, uh, illustration again, the truth is if you got into a time machine and went back as far as eternity would allow you, if you are in Christ, you will never find a molecule of time in which the love of the Father had not been set upon you. He has always loved you. loved you. For those who he foreknew, those who he foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, I know that doctrine of predestination is is difficult and it's, it, it can seem divisive. And because it's divisive, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it because it might, might offend somebody. But let me encourage you, don't put that on the fringes of your faith. It will increase your assurance. As Gerhardus Voss said, the greatest proof that God will never cease to love me is the fact that he never began. His love had no beginning. It always has been. And if that is true, then how are you, a person who is loved of of the divine trinity, despite having never done anything to deserve it, how could you ever do anything to deserve to lose it? It has always been yours. It will always be yours. He will not allow you To drift away. That's assurance. But it doesn't just give us assurance. It also causes us to give glory to God. Ceaseless glory. This does this by humbling us. It humbles us to the uttermost. I have done nothing. All that I have added to my salvation, as Jonathan Edwards said, was the sin that made it necessary. Let me give you a a paraphrase of Thomas Manton here. Just as fire, once it has come upon a lump of coal, must spread throughout it until it is all consumed, so must the glory of God spread throughout the whole being and nature of those upon whom he has set his divine love. The children of God must be consumed by the glory of God in such a way that in all things they cannot but glorify His name above all others, but especially above their own name. Why? Who receives the glory for your salvation? You will not receive an ounce of it. You will stand before the throne of a slaughtered lamb and you will say, Praise be to God for He saves and He saves alone. If we are to be saved, it must be He that initiates, it must be He that sustains, and it must be He that glories in it. That humbles us. It sets ourselves aside and it glorifies Him, glorifies God because of His sovereign choice and the sovereign work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then, what's the last thing that He says? says that we are kept by Christ. and your ESV, it is translated as for Christ. I, I actually prefer the translation by Christ. He is your king. What do kings do? They protect. They guard from enemies' threats, both foreign and domestic. He is your king. He doesn't just rule over you. He keeps you. He guards you. He protects you. He is also your priest. He protects you. He is your refuge from the wrath of God. So it's not just in temporal things that he guides and protects. It's in your spiritual things. He is both priest and he is king. But what does Jude want from What does he want to see there in verse 2? He gives you another list. Mercy, love, and peace. I want to focus on that last word that he uses. Multiply. May mercy, love, and peace be. multiplied. He's not asking for anything different. You already have that. But he's asking that you might increase exponentially in those graces that God has given you in Jesus Christ. I know we've talked about this before. Sometimes we have a very competitive nature About ourselves. But when we see the grace of God. Working and even exceeding the grace that we see in our own lives and others. That's not a call to be jealous. Call to be envious. There is no envy in spiritual things. That is a call to glorify God. Because that is his glory that is on display. So, who are we? We are humble servants. Of an even more humble Lord. Who is the church? We are the beloved of the Father. And what are we to endeavor to do? To seek the temporal and especially the spiritual betterment of our fellow believers, our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. let pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words that you have given us. I, Father, I ask that you would please forgive us for taking your word so lightly that you would give us I heart for it, not just on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That it would consume our lives, that we might be able to always have the cross of Christ perpetually before our eyes. Father, would you please do this by your grace. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen.